Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In politics, the debate to watch this week was between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. It was Pennsylvania's first and only Senate debate and could be the thing that tips the scales. John Fetterman's recovery from a stroke he suffered some months ago was on full display. The Democrats' speech was delayed and he struggled to answer coherently at times. Dr. Oz, on the other hand, was very polished and comfortable on camera, staying on message with attacks on crime and inflation, but he did have a stumble on the abortion issue. For more on some top takeaways for this consequential debate, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. We knew that this was going to be a rough night for John Fetterman just because, first of all, he was, he's still recovering from the stroke, and in a few interviews he's given, it's clear that there are still some auditory processing issues, something his doctor has confirmed. On top of that, John Fetterman is not necessarily a natural debater. He's never been completely comfortable on the debate stage, and even his campaign admits that. They say he's much better in these um, you know, in-person situations, shaking hands with voters, doing retail politics and that kind of environment. So his campaign put out a statement or a memo, but well before the debate on Monday saying that, you know, they, they expect this not to necessarily go the best for Fetterman. Right. Um, uh, for Oz, I would say that, yes, he did appear to be polished and a well-seasoned TV, TV man, for sure. However, I think a lot of his critics are saying that he came across as somewhat arrogant at times. And there was one um, notable statement he made when, in which he said, you know, when he was asked about whether he believed in a federal abortion ban, he essentially said, I believe that a woman's um, an abortion should be between a woman her, or a decision regarding abortion should be between a woman, her doctor and local political leaders. And it's the local political leaders that got really a lot of attention there. So, um, you know, definitely a lot of um you know, major moments from the debate. I think it's compared to other debates of this cycle. It's 
gotten more eyeballs. That being said, though, it remains unclear as to how much this will impact um, the results of the election. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are going to go back and look at this, you know, because the, the, the polls are very, very close for them. They're basically tied right now. Uh, you know, it was going, it was up and down for both of them for a bit, but lately it's just tightened up. And, and you know, a lot of people are going to look back if Dr. Oz does win, you know, they might point to this specific debate, uh, you know, as a, the last thing for John Fetterman, you know, uh, not rising above there, unfortunately, for him. And so, you know, a, a little bit more on his health, because really that's kind of the huge conversation that was happening. You know, other issues obviously hit, but the health was, was the first thing. And John Fetterman, for his part, he began the debate. You know, he gave his little quick opening statement, which other people glommed on as well. He said, hi, good night, everybody. They har- harped on that right away. And then he said, hey, it's the elephant in the room. You know, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Oz hasn't let me forget it. But, you know, to the point that you were just talking about it, there was times where he was delayed, um, you know, uh, rambling on a little bit. There's, you know, serious questions on uh, whether he could perform in the Senate. Yeah, there are those questions. And, you know, you see Fetterman supporters and, you know, other Democrats saying, well, there are, uh, you know, a number of other senators, including Ben Ray Lujan and um, Chris Van Hollen, who have had strokes there in the Senate. But Republicans and, you know, those going against that point would say the difference is that they had strokes while they were in the Senate. Fetterman is not yet in the Senate. He has to be elected first. So they say it's dangerous or, you know, could be playing with fire to send someone who, you know, may not whether there are questions about their um, physical health and how well they could physically implement the job. That being said, I think on the other side of the debate, you have a lot of people who would say, you know, a stroke is something that a lot of Americans go through and is is representative of the American population and that, you know, um, Fetterman should have the same rights to serve in the Senate as someone who has not had a stroke and who is not, um, you know, maybe who is going through that recovery process. So, you know, I think there's a number of different ways to look at it. And you're going to see, um, you know, both Fetterman and Oz and their camps, you know, address that. But it's unclear as to whether, you know, Fetterman's recovery is actually going to impact voters' decisions, especially at a time when you know, we are seeing that voters are being impacted by the issues, whether it's inflation and the economy, um, rising crime, that sort of thing. Yeah. And Fetterman did say a a few times, hey, I got knocked down, but I'm getting back up and I'm continuing to fight. I'm going to fight for others that have gotten knocked down, too. So uh, that's where he stands on that front. Back to Dr. Oz a little bit. He was very much on message with the national GOP messaging, as you mentioned, inflation, crime, immigration, hitting on Fetterman on all of that stuff. And to your point at the beginning, he did stumble a little bit on the abortion issue when he included local political leaders. I know a lot of people didn't want to get on that. But the overall pitch that Dr. Oz was trying to make is that he's going to be a little bit more of a moderate, you know, that he said he wanted to bring back civility and, and, and stuff to the Senate. So really trying to reframe his positions there. Yeah, and that was clearly a pitch to suburban voters or moderate independent swing voters that you often see in Philadelphia suburbs or even Pittsburgh suburbs. And that's where Dr. Oz has been spending a lot of time. That's the population center centers of the state. Um, it's also um, where a lot of the state gets, the me- you know, a lot of media attention comes out of that those parts of the state. So he was very much zeroing in on that. And he's trying to really shed himself of the image that, you know, 
Democrats have been able to paint him as this radical conservative or Trumpian conservative. And, you know, that image has stayed with him since the Republican Party primary earlier this year and since uh, Donald Trump really endorsed him. So this is him doing that, you know, kind of walking that narrow, fine line we talk about in so many other races of wanting to embrace the Trump side um, and more conservative side of the Republican Party, while at the same time making yourself attractive to those independent swing voters. Yeah. And Dr. Oz said he would support President Trump if he was. He said he'd support whoever the nominee was, but they nailed him and said, hey, but but we're talking about Trump. Will he support him? And, you know, he said yes on that. You know, overall, the debate was uh, a little difficult to watch, like I said, concerning the health issues for John Fetterman. But it had its testy moments. Nobody was really raising their voice. Nobody was yelling at each other. But still, you can feel the tension in that room. Yeah, I mean, you had some moments where John Fetterman interrupted Mehmet Oz. Mehmet Oz was, you know, took, um, you know, had his uh, attacks on Fetterman. So it's, it's very tensionous. And I think it really underscores how much there has been, you know, how many debates and on-air attack ads there, how many on-air attack ads excuse me, there have been in Pennsylvania. I mean, turn on the television here and it's back-to-back Fetterman Oz commercials and um, advertisements. So that's what you're seeing really play out. I think the tension that's been really brewing in this race ever since the end of the primaries earlier this year. And it's a big race. You know, a lot of Republican and Democratic strategists say that the party that wins this race will probably hold the Senate majority next year. I mean, a lot of eyes on it. A lot of people have already early voted too. Uh, (laughs) But going into the last couple weeks here, just a, a very, very interesting debate. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Finally for this week, we've known for a long time that asbestos is bad for your health. And while the U.S. did regulate safety standards around it, they never banned it. To this day, hundreds of tons of asbestos are shipped to the U.S. for use by chemical companies that produce chlorine. Part of the reason why it was never banned is that protocols are so stringent, these companies made the case that the threat of exposure to workers is very little. However, interviews with employees at one OxyChem plant near Niagara Falls tells a different story. For more on how some workers fear for their health after years at working at these chemical plants, We'll speak to Kathleen McRory, reporter at ProPublica. You start off by mentioning that so many other countries have just gone ahead and banned asbestos outright. And it's because of the, the reasons that you've alluded to, right, that we've known for such a long time that this is a deadly carcinogen, that it can lead to all types of negative health outcomes, some deadly 
So over the years, we have seen many countries take steps to ban it outright. Now, that's not something that the United States has done. Uh, The EPA tried at one point in the 80s, but it was unable to get that ban uh, over the finish line per se. Industry sued and its efforts were overturned. And what that's meant in practice is that there are still two major chemical companies, Oxychem and Olin Corp, that are still importing hundreds of tons of asbestos into the country each year and using it in their chlorine plants. You know, one of the things that's been interesting, kind of a a point of contention in in Washington, D.C. lately, where there have been renewed talks about moving forward with an asbestos ban after all these years, there have been some questions about the safety of the workers in these plants uh, who are still handling it. And, you know, we've seen the EPA turn around and say, well, we think these guys are really at unreasonable risk of getting sick. And we've seen the chemical companies say, uh, no, these guys are, are protected by strict rules. There's heavy regulation. These guys are, are just fine. So what we wanted to do as reporters at ProPublica was to really look at this and investigate it independently to get a sense of what was really happening on the ground. And that's kind of how we, we launched on this investigation. And you focus on the story on an OxyChem plant uh, near Niagara Falls. Uh, so OxyChem is owned by Occidental Patrol one of the largest energy companies. And you spoke to about 18 former employees because that plan has since been closed. But you spoke to about 18 former employees there. It was just talking about how lax some, I mean, they had the rules in place, but how lax some of the enforcement, I guess, was. And asbestos was kind of just everywhere. And we'll get into that in a moment. But just tell us briefly how asbestos gets into the body. It can get into the body any which way. You can breathe it in. It's so tiny. The little fibers get stuck into your esophagus, your lungs, the lining of your lungs, your heart, your stomach and intestines. And, you know, it can wreak havoc on the body in a lot of different ways. That's right. I mean, you breathe in these fibers that are invisible to the eye and they can get lodged in in any number of organs. And what they do is, you know, when they get stuck in, for example, the lining of the lungs. That leads to constant irritation. That leads to constant inflammation. You know, it can lead to there being the accumulation of water on the lining of the lungs over time. can also start to lead to cancers. And, you know, in the lining of the lungs, that's where we see mesothelioma, which is a a particularly bad cancer. It usually takes the life of of folks who develop it within just a few years of that diagnosis but can lead to many other different cancers as well. Describe to us the process. Why do they use asbestos? I mean, they're, they're jolting um, some of this stuff with electricity so that it can separate the salt water into different substances. So we're looking at chlorine, caustic soda, and hydrogen, and they use asbestos as kind of a divider to keep the chemicals separate. Explain that process yeah. if you could. That's right. It's actually a, it's a really interesting process. It starts with salt water, uh, which is very basic. And what they do is they put a jolt of electricity through that salt water, and that act separates the elements, the chemicals, into chlorine, into caustic, and into hydrogen. But you know, you've got imagine you've got a tank. They call it a cell uh, because it is um, that's where the electric current is running through, and it's about the size of a dining room table. And it's got these three highly reactive chemical substances inside of it. And inside the tank, all of these things need to be kept separate. So what they do is they have a big metal screen in the middle of the tank that essentially exists to divide the chemicals to make sure they don't react with each other and explode. 
But we know chlorine, for example, is highly corrosive and will eat that metal. So in order to make sure that metal survives in the tank, they actually cover it with a thick coating of asbestos. This whole process, there's a lot of water obviously involved with this. The asbestos, all that stuff is always constantly supposed to remain wet so the particles Mm -hmm. don't fly into the air and all that. But the problem comes with after those things dry. You know, they splatter it with water, it goes all over the place, and then that stuff dries. And then that's kind of where the problem really starts. So as I mentioned, you spoke to about 18 former employees there at this particular plant. And what did they describe to you? Because despite the protocol set in place to keep things safe, you know, they were uh, telling you guys that the asbestos was just everywhere, thick coatings, getting in people's mustaches and whatnot. It was just all over the place. Well, so you imagine these these big, thick screens that are 12 by 12. They're huge. They're coated with asbestos. They need to be recoated periodically. So in order to get the old asbestos off, what they would do is they would water blast them, essentially with a high power pressure washer, if you will, to remove that old asbestos. Then they would take the screen and dip it into a mixture of fresh asbestos. It's a wet mixture. And then bake that new asbestos on and then put the screen back into the tank, you know, and and as as you've said, rightly, the asbestos is less of an issue if it's not airborne because there's no way to breathe it in. But they described water blasting those screens as like, you know, taking a a hose over to a car when you are washing your car, you know, the dirt just doesn't fall nicely to the ground. It kind of splatters everywhere. And they said that that's what happened with the asbestos. It would get stuck on the walls, on the ceiling. It would get stuck on the light fixtures and the beams overhead. And, you know, it would be wet, obviously, in that moment, but that overnight, sometimes even faster than that in the summer when it was hot, it would dry. And then they would be left with this asbestos accumulating essentially everywhere. They said you could see it in the air when the light poured through the building. Sometimes it rolled across the floor. It almost looked like a tiny tumbleweed. And then in some places, it actually accumulated until it was inches thick. To your point, I mean, they just, they said it was everywhere and they said it would splash on their clothes. They would carry it around the plant and then when it would dry, but kind of, it would flake off. You know, one of the things that could possibly have contributed to all this was these plants were kind of placed in a special program that limited the amount of times they would be investigated by places like OSHA and whatnot. And so they didn't get very many inspections. And even when they did show up, you know, nothing was really flagged. So to authorities and all that, everything was kind of just on the up and up. But, you know, when you spoke to uh, experts, industrial hygiene and occupational health experts, I mean, they were pretty horrified by what they were hearing as far as these accounts from these workers here. What did um, OxyChem say for their part on all this? We reached out to OxyChem and we shared our findings with them. They had said that the accounts we heard from Niagara Falls were inaccurate. So we asked for some follow-up and and asked specifically what was inaccurate, but they declined to elaborate. They did issue a statement that said that safety is their top priority and that they followed federal regulations and that they allowed folks who felt that they were in a dangerous or precarious position to stop work instantly. But again, that that statement seemed to conflict with what these workers were telling us. And so now, as I mentioned, that that plant, specific plant is closed. The company has other newer plants with a a better technology now that, you know, they say they don't even need to use the asbestos anymore. So it's uh, increasingly being phased out even more, thankfully. 
But where are we on the regulatory side? It's still not banned asbestos. And, you know, for these workers that you spoke through, uh, spoke to for the story, I mean, there's concerns for the decades that they worked there, you know, that uh, something bad could, uh, could be on the horizon for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned that these companies do have newer plants that have newer technology that doesn't need the asbestos, but they still do have together eight plants that rely on this asbestos technology. So there are still folks who are working uh, with the material every day at these eight plants still here in the U.S. I mean, as far as what's going on on a regulatory level, the EPA is trying again to ban asbestos outright in April they went ahead and published a proposed rule saying that this is their intention, um, but there's a rulemaking process that needs to be followed, and that gives all stakeholders an opportunity to reach out and express their satisfaction with the language or concerns that they have about it. And what we're seeing right now is the industry coming out and really arguing that this isn't necessary and fighting for the continued use of asbestos in these chlorine plants. Uh, And one of the arguments that they have made and are continuing to make is that we should be able to keep using it because we use it safely. You know, as far as what's going to happen next, we don't really know. Uh, We had a conversation with folks at EPA and they said that they, you know, intend to to follow the science, that they wouldn't be backing down from the science, you know, but in, in previous iterations of this fight, we have seen that industry is a strong force, you know, and, and has the ability to challenge these things legally um, and sometimes in the court of public opinion. So it's really too soon to know exactly what's going to happen here. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting look into one of these plants, speaking to all these former employees. There's a lot of details we couldn't get to. I, I suggest everybody go out and read the piece because it's, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that you would never know unless you were working there. So everybody check out Kathleen's piece here. Kathleen McGorry, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.